Sunday school, right? Yes, I always forget, but we're not going to today. So you kids can run upstairs. Lori, are you the, the boss today? So, so Shayla and I went for a walk with Lori while she's walking out. She won't even hear this all. But you might not know that she is the first female president for, what is it now? Orthopedics? Canadian Orthopedic Association. So congratulations to Lori. That's why she's always the boss. Though if you ask Ernie when she operates on his knee, he did not listen to anything she said afterwards. Sorry, Ernie, you're not even here again. Maybe I shouldn't apologize. He's just never here anymore, it seems. He got home from Hawaii, and we chatted for about two minutes. And I was like, so you're good to do Sunday announcements? And he said, uh, nope, now I'm going to Houston. So he was home for two days and then left again. So I don't know. Yeah, he must have to, yes. All right, well, welcome here. Uh, if you are visiting or if you are visiting online and you uh, don't know anything about us, we're glad you have found us. If you want to open to the book of Daniel, we're going to start chapter 2 today, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of an introduction on where we have been uh, and, and where we are at right now, just so that you have a little bit of context. It's taken us uh, three weeks to get to chapter 2, which was only 20 one verses, and today we're going to try and do 30 in one go. So we're going to try and speed up a little bit. The book of Daniel is written at a time in history where the Jewish people uh, have come under exile from the Babylonians. They've been taken off, off into captivity. They no longer are a united people. They're living uh, essentially as slaves, the same as what we read in Genesis going into the land uh, of Egypt at one point. And, and so this similar thing has happened. The Jewish people are being, their minds are trying to be erased of their Jewish culture and their Jewish heritage. They're trying to be assimilated into Babylonian culture and to worship their gods and believe the things that the Babylonians believe. And so as we come to this book of Daniel, we spend a great deal of time talking about that history talking about the context to get to this place, and especially this morning now, as we start to see the faith and the obedience of this morning, Daniel, uh, and, and his three friends, and we're going to continue with that theme over the next few weeks, but their faithfulness and their trust in God, despite horrible obstacles and horrible challenges that they face. And so immediately, when we read through Daniel, we can find uh, great comfort in it, knowing that whatever situation that you're dealing with, the hardships, the difficulties, the struggles, the pain, the hurts that you have, that you can read through Daniel and look at it and say, I can be faithful like Daniel. Because God is at work in my situation the same as God was in Daniel. All through the first chapter, we saw things about God's sovereignty. Daniel believed God was at work despite what the circumstances appeared. And that God was in control and that he was going to bless, that he was going to be at work in their lives and ultimately was going to redeem them from this. And we can have the same confidence. And so while you might not be in exile this morning, we do have certain challenges in each of our lives. We have pains and hurts and uncertainties. And we can know that God is at work in those things despite the fact that maybe we 
can't see them. Now, we talked about the structure of this book a little bit, but it becomes important today because if you remember back, chapter 1 was written in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people, which is almost the entire Old Testament is written in that. And then all of a sudden here, from chapters 2 to 7, it switches to Aramaic. And then from chapters uh, 8 to 12, it goes back to Hebrew. And so there's this structural pattern that the original readers, they would have seen very clearly, though we don't. And, and actually, both Hebrew and Aramaic use the same alphabet. And so if you don't know either of those languages, but you found an original scroll and you were looking through it, you might not even notice the language change. But much like French and English use the same alphabet, is if you're reading something in English and you don't know French and all of a sudden it's in French, you're very clearly aware something has changed here. And so we switch to Aramaic here, signifying here an important shift in the tone and in what's going to happen. We've been looking at the history. We've been looking at what's happening to the Jewish exiles, specifically these four men. And now we come to this place of how God is going to use them in the land of Babylon. And so this is really important that we take stock of this. So let's read here. We're going to read a big section, 30 verses, and, and then... We won't spend so much time on it because a lot of it is more narrative, which is just it kind of flows very, very clearly. But we do want to make a couple observations. So it says this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned, excuse me, summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But, if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. 
Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah and Michelle and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's decree. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you laid in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So we're not even going to look at what the actual dream was today. We're simply going to look and see what we can learn from Daniel in these verses. Now, first things first, because sometimes we ignore difficult parts. Verse 1 has a problem in it. If you remember from what we've talked about is Nebuchadnezzar takes over he goes down and brings all the Jew- he captures Jerusalem, brings all the Jewish people back into captivity, and then he puts uh, the Jewish exiles into kind of a training service. And do you remember how long it was for? Three years. And then we have in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems like, Daniel, why would you, what's going on? Why would you make such a silly mistake? Well, well, some people have tried to argue that this happened in the midst of that training, and so there's no timeline kind of problem. This was just in the middle of their training, these things happened. But as we read the text there, it seems pretty clear that Daniel and his friends' training was up, and they were already in service of the king. So then what do we do? When we come to a problem like this, we can either come very skeptically proving without actually trying to prove this shows contradiction in the Bible, the Bible's wrong. Or we can actually do a little bit of study and figure out, does this resolve? Is this more simple than maybe we're making it? Well, the first thing we need to remember is this, is the three-year period that the people were, were being trained for is not thought of in the sense of three years or three consecutive 365-day periods. It's more like thinking of it like your school year. Is this not 
starting January 1st and then going three different years. It's three years, generically speaking. But the second thing, and this is far more important, and all we have to do here is go to some Babylonian historical uh, settings and, and read, and what you learn is this. When a king, uh, and this is not unique to Babylon, this is normal through all uh, the ancient world at that point, is the year that a king took over the throne, whether that be his father died and so he was put in place, or whether he wasn't actually in the lineage of the king, but they assassinated the king and so he assumed the throne, whatever it might have been, is that first year was called the accession year, not the first year, because it never worked out that January 1st he became the king of that nation. And so it wasn't one full year. So actually his full first year, whenever that falls, is then known as his first year. So Nebuchadnezzar takes over somewhere in the middle of the year, and that becomes his ascension year. So as he is taking over, the people are put into that schooling for that first year. So by the time you look at this, is his third year is actually considered his second year. So it's actually quite simple. Did that make sense? That maybe got real confusing. First year is second year, second year is third year. I don't know what I just said. The point being is that when Daniel says, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, everyone would have read that and understood exactly what he meant, and there would have been no problem. So what often happens is we look at a, at a, a group of writings, so in this case, the scroll of Daniel, and we import a modern mindset to it and go, this doesn't add up, this is wrong. When we actually just need to remember, this is hundreds, if not a few thousand years old, some of these scrolls, and we are the problem. We need to think differently. We need to think like the ancients did. And like I said, a few minutes of work and you find out a session year is all of a sudden makes that very, very simple. So that's verse 1, just so that you know that we didn't just ignore that and move on. King has a dream, and he's very troubled by this dream. And if you remember back to chapter 1, Daniel is given the ability to interpret dreams, which is the most highly sought-after uh, skill given of anybody in ancient Babylonian culture because they believed that dreams were the way in which their gods communicated to them. So if you had a dream that was God telling you something and then you needed to surround yourself with people to interpret that dream so that you could know what was going to happen. How many of you need a dream interpreter? Probably don't want a dream interpreter. I'm not sure, I'm not trying to say that God didn't work this way, because clearly in the Old Testament there's lots of dreams, this one included, where God was at work and doing things, but it doesn't take long for you in your own dreams to realize some of those dreams are just because you ate something you shouldn't have that night, or whatever it might have been. But in this case, he sees, or, or Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it, it bothered him so immensely that he does something that no king had ever done before. According to Babylonian history, they actually have these dream books. Um, archaeologists have a, a, another name for them. But at this time, they found the Chaldean dream books, which are all these documents of, here's all these dreams that these kings had. Here's the circumstances around them. This is what happened in those years. And then they collected all this history so that when a new dream happened, they could kind of look back and they could see, are there times, are there seasons, are there things to interpret here and understand so that we can then give the king some wisdom. So that was a normal thing. The, the crazy thing was the king going, what was my dream? 
not just interpret it for me, what was it? Does that seem like a strange request? And so when, I, when something like that happens and we read in here and we go, this seems really weird, I think we should go, oh, this is really weird. We should really actually do some homework in this. So there's kind of two responses, two kind of groups of scholars have two different opinions. One is a very small-held uh, view, and I, and I don't think it has as much weight behind it, and that is simply that the king was so bothered by the dream is so troubled by it, he woke up and he couldn't remember the details of that dream, and so he didn't know how to ask for help. He didn't know how to ask or tell them, here was my dream, interpret it for me. And so it scared him so much that he didn't know what to do other than to say, you need to tell me the dream and the interpretation to prove that you are actually as smart as you say you are. But again, as, as they say to the king, no one's ever asked that before. So I don't think that interpretation holds a lot of weight, especially considering the king's response. Like, he's so afraid that he's going to rip everyone in pieces, burn their houses down, and kill their families. It seems like an awfully extreme response to, I've forgotten this dream. Or like he's trying to protect himself from the embarrassment of, uh, I don't remember what it was. Rather, what most interpreters seem to think here is this, is that he remembers the dream, and again, we haven't read what the dream is, but we'll see that next week. He, he knows that the dream potentially has very negative consequences for him. So, as we get into it, and I'll just give you a real brief thing, is there's a statue, and he seems to think that he is the statue, and the statue is destroyed. And so that makes him go, what's going to happen? And, and interpreters talk about it in the sense of so many kings were assassinated and other people tried to rise to power that he was afraid that there was corruption within his own kind of officials, these groups of people that he comes to tell, you have to tell me my dream. In other words, I don't want to tell you what I saw because I don't want you to know that I know that you're actually going to plot and kill and overthrow me. And so this is... I think it makes great sense because he's going, you tell me the dream knowing you can't tell me the dream. And when you can't tell me the dream, I can clean house and I can kill all of you and I can just start over, have new people in place that won't try and overthrow me. I can have much more control over all of that. I think that's what makes the most sense. I think that's what warrants his kind of crazy command of them to tell them the dream and the fact that he's going to literally kill every single one of them. Either way, whichever kind of interpretation you hold, the point being is that this rattled Nebuchadnezzar greatly and he was scared. So, he says, tell me the dream. They say, we can't. Nobody can do that. Or it almost reads as though the first time they're like, okay, you brought us in here to interpret a dream. You said to tell us the dream, but that can't be what you meant. So why don't you tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it. And he goes, no. No, you, you know the word is firm for me. And he actually even says, basically he says, you're going to collude together and you're going to say lying things that aren't true to try and buy yourself time. No, you have to tell me. What is it? Now, I said something last week that I want to say again because it reminds us of how to interpret the book of Daniel or, or any Old Testament book at all. The Bible, and we said this, right, the Bible is a unified story that is all about who? 
It all points toward Jesus. And so if we're interpreting it apart from who Jesus was, if we're interpreting it apart from God's plan of salvation, that he would one day deal with sin, then we're missing the point. And so when we read through this, and the Chaldeans answer the king, and they say this, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no greater powerful king has ever asked this. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That should remind us of something. John chapter 1 says what? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. You flip to 14. And what does it say? Somebody read. The word became flesh and the flesh what? They literally just said the gods do not dwell among people. And then God the one true God says, actually, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's exactly how salvation is going to come, is one is going to come who can come and dwell among you and show you what God's love and his mercy and his grace is and one who will sacrifice his very life so that you can have salvation. The God, the one true God, does dwell among you. And if you think kind of we're stretching to reach that, well, then all we have to do is stick Daniel in the middle of this and go, the gods do not do this. They do not dwell among flesh. And then God goes, hang on, I'm going to reveal to Daniel exactly what the dream is. Daniel is, it's this typology. Daniel represents the one who is to come. Daniel is going to save not only his people, but also the Babylonians in general, which we'll talk about in a minute, because God reveals something to him which foreshadows and brings us to, not only is Jesus going to save the Jewish people, but who is he going to save? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And so we see these patterns unfolding. We see these things point. And, and sometimes it's really helpful when in the English it just says, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And, and maybe you just read John and you went, oh, he became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the one true God. He does things that nobody does. He's capable of doing that which even the Babylonian enchanters said, the gods do not do this. And it's as if God says, okay, challenge accepted. I'm going to show you that I can work in and through anybody I want to. And in fact, I'm going to come down and I'm going to become flesh. So they say, can't be done. It's impossible. Nobody could do this. Which, again, right? It's just like we're just leading to the point of Daniel is about to, I don't know, drop the hammer, I guess. King is furious and angry. And again, I think this, this supports that interpretation of, of his government being overthrown because he just asked them to do something that's impossible. He should just know that that's what's going to happen. But he gets angry, and he gets furious. He commands all of them are going to be killed. Verse 14, there's just this really interesting um, moment that happens here. It says, Daniel replied with what? Prudence and discretion. Other translations will say with wisdom and tact. I just think that's worth noting. We as Christians have been given the wisdom of God because the Holy Spirit is in us and we should respond the same way with grace and kindness and courtesy, not demanding 
we should be very wise. We should be very tactful in how we talk to people. It always, always will end better. So Daniel asks him what's going on, and he explains it to him. And then notice what Daniel says in verse 16. So Daniel goes in to request to the king a time that he might show him the interpretation of the dream. Does Daniel have the interpretation of the dream? Does Daniel know what the dream was? From what we see in the flow of thought here is Daniel says, don't destroy everybody. Let me go talk to God. Because I know the one who can reveal these things. You say that the gods can't. I say that the one true God can. He acts in faith and confidence. And you might even say, maybe he's being a little bit arrogant. But then, if you keep reading, you see very quickly he's not. Because the first thing that he does is he goes and he makes the matter known to his three friends. And he says, seek mercy from God concerning this mystery. So literally what he does is he goes home and he says, let's pray. And he calls on God that God would reveal to him the mystery. I think we in our world need to understand this is we are called to act in faith and belief that God can do anything, but whether he will or not remains with him and with him alone. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but in 3 verse 18, it's a very familiar story to many of you. The three friends are about to get thrown into the furnace for, you know, their perceived disobedience against Nebuchadnezzar. And they argue and they say, What's, I, I told you two weeks ago my favorite verse in the Old Testament. This one would be my second. Is they say, our God is able to save us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you. Even if. And that's the key. That's for us. We need to see and, and understand God in this context. Is God can do anything, but we are not owed anything. And so we step out in faith and we say, God, I believe that you are in control. In this case, Daniel goes, I, I think God wants me to be used in this moment. But he doesn't then go and demand, God, show me. He pleads, God, will you? Faith and humility acting together, and I think this is probably the most difficult thing that we battle as Christians, is holding both of those things well. There's a theology that we've kind of renamed to the name it and claim it type of thing. I want this, I'll just declare that God is going to give it to me, and through my faith in that, then that will happen. That's a widely held view in evangelicalism. So let me ask you the question is, who's the main character in that part? It's me then, right? I'm going to name something. I'm going to claim it. And God has to bend to my will because my faith is so strong so I will get something. It's not about God. It's not about submission to his will. It's not about calling on him. It's really about being a child saying, give me and give me now. That's not the way that God works. We approach him with fear and trembling, not because we're scared of him, but because we recognize just how awesome and how powerful he is and how just by the words that come out of his mouth, he can create from nothing. It puts us in a sense of humility where we go, God, I believe you can. I believe you are capable of this. Will you reveal this mystery to us? 
And in verse 19, we see that it is given to Daniel. And then his response is just so, so beautiful. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And then the rest of his prayer is essentially this, is you and you alone, God, are in control. You establish all things. In your wisdom, in your might, you do whatever should be done. Now, I think this is super important for us in this time. He removes kings and he sets kings up. Later, Paul and Peter both riff off this idea and tell us that there is no government in authority that God has not put there. So what does that mean for us in our time? That means we got to stop talking about the government the way that we do sometimes. Because God has put them there for purpose and for reason. And I might not be able to figure out that, and it might even seem totally contrary. And in other parts of the world where Christianity is illegal to be practiced because of those governments, how do we process all those things? Well, it's the same thing that Daniel's facing right now. Him and his three friends were just exiled as 14-year-olds out of their land. They have nothing left. They've been put into service of the king, learning about all these other gods and this other culture, and they're trying to be stripped of their Jewish identity. They have nothing going for them, and yet Daniel is convinced that God is in control and that he is at work, and that God has purpose for him. See, his circumstances would not dictate his faith and his belief in God, and that ought to be true of us as well. God, you set up kings. You take them down. You put new governments into place. You have purpose and you have meaning and you're in control. So I can trust you. Even though I don't understand what's going on, Daniel did not understand. He didn't have hindsight. He didn't have, you know, we have the scriptures for us over and over and over showing us God's faithfulness and that he is in control and that even when the world seems chaotic and that there's no hope, God brings hope from seemingly nothing. So we can read this and we can remind ourselves that in this situation, if God could do what he did there, how much easier can he do what needs to be done in my life, in our world, in our time? So we trust in him. And so he finishes this, this, po- this poem or this psalm by saying, to you, O God of my fathers, I give you praise for you have given me mis- wisdom and might. So he goes to Arioch, to the captain's garden, or to the captain of the garden. He says, let me go stand before the king and tell him. In verse 25, it seems like Arioch tries to take credit for this rather than Daniel. Right? I have found among the exiles, as if he was out searching for someone. I just find that interesting. We always like to take credit for something that isn't ours. And, and I think it's intentional for this simple reason, is when Daniel then stands before the king and the king goes, okay, you can tell me. And what does he say? Actually, no. Like, there's not a man alive who can do what you have requested. But there is one, there is a God in heaven who can. Ariok's really, really quick to take the credit. Daniel's really quick to pass the credit off. This is not because of me. It's because the one true God is capable of doing all things. And he revealed it to me. Notice the humility in that. 
And again, as we kind of finish that, even in verse 30, he says it this way, As for me, this mystery that has been revealed to me is not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. And again, he could easily take credit because just a chapter earlier, we found that he and his friends were ten times more wise and, and had more knowledge than everyone else in the, all of the kingdom. It would be very easy for him to be like, I actually am the smartest person in the kingdom. So, I, like, you ever watch the Big Bang Theory or something, right? Like, you could take all the credit that you want because you are that smart. You see, Daniel's concern is not the exaltation of himself, but the exaltation of the one true God. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that should be your chief end. Not for yourself to be elevated, not for your name to become great, but that you would pass everything that comes to you through that understanding and say this is only because of God's mercy and his grace and only because he is in control and he has all power. If we want a great name for ourselves at the expense of God, then I don't think we truly understand who God is. Because I can't save anybody. My own abilities or my own talents or my our own whatever you want to fill in the blank with, that can only get us so far and it's actually not real far at all. There's always going to be someone who's smarter, someone who's better, someone who's more talented, someone who's, again, fill in the blank. But if I recognize that God is the one at work and it is not because of me, it is not because of my wisdom, it's not because of my intellect, it's because God is at work if we attribute praise and honor to him in those moments, then people will go, why aren't you taking the credit? Who is this God? See, our whole goal as Christians is the exaltation of the Father so that people would see and they would go, I want to be in relationship with him. I recognize that I need help, and that help can only come from one place. And Daniel says it very clearly, there's no man on earth that could do this. But there is a God in heaven who can. I think this idea of humility, especially in our time, as Christians, is so, so vital. All you have to do, and we say this all the time, but all you have to do is flip on social media and you will see more arrogance and a lack of being willing to enter into conversation with someone and they just want to fight. They just want to prove I'm smarter than you are. My research is better than your research, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we want to be people of humility, then how do we do that? I think we have to be humbled to become people of humility, don't we? I was stuck on this, this verse in Philippians 4.11 for about 10 days now. I had a meeting a, a while ago with a friend of mine. We were reading through Philippians 4, and, and, and Paul writes this very familiar word. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And we kind of think, man, it would be really nice to learn how to be content in every situation, wouldn't it? But we forget that there's a word, or, or maybe we ignore it, or we just read over it. But the word that is so important there is learned. How do you learn anything? By going through it. Repetition. It happening over and over again. How did Paul learn to be content? Well, he says in one place, I was shipwrecked a bunch of times. I was beaten a bunch of times. I was whipped a bunch of times. I was so on and so on and so on and so on. 
He went through all of these situations so that he could learn, I cannot do this on my own. I desperately need a Savior. And because he is with me, I can be content no matter what because I know he is in control. So the same is true for us. How do we become humble or how do we have humility? We allow ourselves to be humbled. We see just how desperately we need the one true God. That we can't do anything on our own. That there is not a man alive who can do what we need to be done. Except that God became flesh and he dwelt among us and his name was Jesus. And he has done what we could not. So we can put our faith in him for eternal life. We can put our faith not only for eternal life, but that he will have meaning and purpose in your life from this day forward until the day that you die. And it won't be for your glory and your honor. It'll be for God's. Daniel shows us what it means to be faithful. He shows us how to have humility. But more importantly yet, he shows us and reminds us that there is no one on earth who can help except for Jesus. The God who became flesh. The God who did what other gods could not. So may we remember that as we go through this week, as the difficulties that you are facing maybe feel overwhelming to you today or tomorrow or the next day, you can know God is at work. I can trust him. He will be faithful. This is for my good, that I would learn to trust him, that I would learn to have humility, that I would learn to what it means to be content. And then when we learn those things, we can show them to others, not because we're awesome, but because he is. Not so that we receive glory or honor, but so that the only one who deserves that glory and honor receives it. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses here and, and the impact that they can have on our lives if we read it carefully and slowly if we look to see the big picture of Scripture through just these verses, then we remind ourselves there's only one God who can save. God, I'm reminded of a quote that says, every one of us worships. The only choice we get is what are we going to worship. God, may we not worship money or fame or prestige or accomplishment or knowledge. May we realize that all of those things lead us to a dead end. But may we have the faith and humility that we see in Daniel here to know that there is a God in heaven who can intervene. And praise the Lord, we know that there is a God in heaven who did intervene. And you sent Jesus to the earth that he might become that sacrifice for our sins so that we could be with you forever. God, may we trust that you, just as you were back then, you were at work. And while we may be, not be able to see clearly what you are doing right now in this moment of our life, help us to look back into Scripture and to see that you are faithful always. And so we can know now that you are faithful today. So God, I pray for each one here, for the situation that they are going through that seems overwhelming. The challenges that lay in front of them, the uncertainties and the difficulties. 
that they would know that they walk with you, that you have not walked away, that you have not abandoned, but that you are at work in their lives. Give us this steadfast faith to know that you are in control. God, go with us this week. Give us opportunities for us to declare your name, for us to show that you deserve glory and honor and not us. God, we're so thankful for all you're doing. We love you. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Um, I just do want to mention we are in process of trying to fix our technological issues that happened last week and this morning as well. Uh, but we fixed those. We will try and have the stuff online from last week at some point. I know many of you have asked, and we are at work doing that. Um, th special thanks to Becca this morning. Shayla is gone, and, and Becca stepped up and did everything. So thank you for your help in that. Which then also reminds me, if you are technologically savvy at all, we could definitely use you at the back. And if we're, yes, if you're not, Lee will train you. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. one down